0: I don't know about you, but I definitely struggle with the fear of the unknown, especially when I'm making major changes in my business and my life. So, listen into my conversation with Dr. Chris Huff on why we all struggle with it and what to do about it in this episode of the Enough Ready Podcast. Welcome to the Enough Ready Podcast. This is the show for consultants and coaches who want to forge their own path to success in their careers and their lives. I'm your host, Betsy Jordan, and we got to get real here. So, here's the reality. Big changes always create big fears. And there's really good reasons why. So, today I wanted to bring on the show Dr. Chris Huff, who is one of my members in my Purpose to Profits Academy. And he's somebody who's transformed his career not just once, but twice. So, he went from an entrepreneur to a therapist and having a therapy practice to a consulting business owner. So, he gets it on a very personal level. But more importantly, because of his background as a mental health therapist, he understands why fear of the unknown is such a big deal and why it's such a big part of the process. So if you want to hear a compassionate and actionable approach to how to handle this fear and how to embrace what he calls these liminal spaces between where we are today and where you want to be, definitely listen in. And so without further ado, welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you,
1: Betsy. It's a pleasure to be here and I appreciate the invitation.
0: So you have been in the Purpose to Profits Academy for a while, and you and I have been connected in many different ways. Mm -hmm. And so it was always interesting to me about you in the Academy, which is my group coaching program where we learn all those cool marketing sales skills and all of that, Um, is your background is that you are a consultant to organizations around conflict resolution and mediation, but you're a mental health therapist as a background, so I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about your journey to how you have the business that you have now. So let's talk about your background.
1: Sure, Um, yeah, thank you. Um, I do think I do have kind of an interesting background that kind of pulls together uh, some different disciplines, but I started um, actually in business. I was an entrepreneur in 1996. I started had two business partners. We started a technology staffing company um that you know provide you know worked worked in technology and aerospace and defense and stuff like that um and we grew that business throughout the years by the time i exited in 2010 we were at about 200 employees and eight figures in sales and so we had a successful run and then i kind of hit this place in my life at that time where i started, I wanted to do something different. And, and what I wanted to do, I was a psychology undergrad, and I had kind of always had this hope, you know, when I got that degree, that eventually I might, you know, end up getting a master's degree and, you know, getting licensed as a therapist, that kind of thing. But, but, you know, I came, you know, around 2010, or actually, before then, I started to have, I guess, a stereotypical midlife crisis. And I, um started to kind of survey my life and and thought about you know what did, what did i want to do in the second half of my life kind of thing and um and came came to realize that I, I did want to go back to school i did want to become a therapist so i went to my business partners and i said you know um this has been a wonderful run but can't do it anymore and, and they were shocked at first but then we all worked it out and i ended up exiting the business and um and going back to school. And I ended up getting a master's degree and then a PhD eventually, uh, and then became a working therapist. And what happened though is that, uh, actually the PhD program was an interesting one because it combined, you know, basically psychology and and it, it had a minor that you could get in organization, well, systems consulting, organizational oh. consulting. and Yeah, and so, which I thought was great because I could use some of my business experience and and kind of meld these, Kind of the, the systemic relational practice with organizational consulting, and I and I thought that was kind of neat. And so I did all that, and then you know started out as a therapist, had a practice, uh, started a nonprofit, all that kind of stuff. But eventually, uh, I got called back because people knew my background. I would get these kinds of gig one-off gigs here and there, doing either like facilitations, team building uh, you know, um, mediating conversations between people, all these kinds of things. And, and eventually I decided, well, I should turn this into a business. And, you know, I'm always the entrepreneur, right? And I was kind of thinking about that. So, uh, and that led to, and my father was a consultant, an independent consultant for a lot of years on his own. And so he was a good example of that. And so I ended up just starting Huff Consulting Group and, uh, here I am.
0: (laughs) Okay. So I wish I would have known a little bit more about your background when you were in the academy. Okay. So I did not realize you're a long-term entrepreneur. I kind of thought you were a a therapist turned consultant, but you were in a business. Then you took the therapy and you took the combination of like, all right, here's what I know about businesses and running organizations with what I know about psychology, not just one-on-one psychology, but organizational psychology. And that is what you combined into your business.
1: I, I, absolutely. Yeah, exactly.
0: So that's absolutely brilliant. Um so <laughs> I want to I just want to ask a little bit more about like just that yearning going from like like what it kind of seemed like is like more like just the head head kind of like just operations like let's just create a business to more of like this heart person and wanted to get this counseling, organizational psychology kind of degree. Like, what was it about midlife that kind of like brought more of that to the forefront? Why couldn't it just be like business, 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 or go straight to yeah. business to business consulting? But there's this interim kind of time period where you went into more of like, how do I understand people and this other part of the part of your expertise?
1: Yeah, and I, you know, and I think there's um, that's a great question. I think, because um, I was, you know, by all outside appearances, very successful living the dream, right? I built this business. I was a successful entrepreneur. I had financial security, all these kinds of things. So a lot of people, you know, outside of my wife at the time, thought I was crazy when I yes. made this decision <laughs> to do that. But um but prior to making that decision, I had some, you know, these experiences that were happening in my life, and it, and I think this happens to everybody it's eventually somewhere along the line. That, and I, there's a uh, models, developmental models that map this process too, right? Where it's like, you know, it's once we hit this kind of second half of life, you know, kind of having impact, or, or like there's other things become more important than just like money and stuff like that, if if we're privileged in that way, right? And so, um, you know, so what happened, that happened to me. I, I, you know, I had all the, I had all the, you know, I think Richard Rohr says it great. He says, you know, uh, many of us climb the ladder only to get to the top and realize the ladder's against the wrong wall. And I'm,
0: um... I'm trying to look, because I think I have that book <laughs> sitting on my desk right now, <laughs> if you're oh, wondering yeah. why. It's the uh, Falling Upward. I think he talked Falling talks Upward. It. Yes, yes. Yes. It's Fish. like you're talking about Richard Rohr, my hero. <laughs> I love Richard Rohr. <laughs> I have Falling Upward. I can. I think it's yeah. right there on my floor right there.
1: <laughs> and that's that was one of the books that I was reading at the time, right? And it was very impactful. And so if anybody's listening that might be in that space right now, uh, I found that book very, very helpful about it. It is Falling Upward of Spirituality for the Second Half of Life and the, and so I I you know i was having that experience and then it just uh to be quite honest i had a friend uh die by suicide and um, that really rocked kind of my world at the time and and it had me take stock of my life and um and i just determined i just decided to you know I, these are the things that i want to do in the time that i have left and this is how i want to you know kind of approach the second half of my life and and that's the decision i made and i have not regretted a, a minute of it I'm um, I'm very fortunate that way. I, I love the work that I get to do. I love working with people. I love being invited into people's lives and and, and oftentimes very difficult situations. And and, um, and I think it's kind of an honor and a privilege to do that. And, and I love the work that I do.
0: You know, it's, I, I, again, another opportunity. I'm like, <laughs> I wish we would have met and got to know each other better. <laughs> you know, and now we are getting to know each other better. And I wish I would have knew all of this when you first joined the academy because that's like the heart of everything that I do in my business you know and I I I think that for me it's like it was the same story you know it's like I hit that midlife wake-up call and mm-hmm. when my dad died for you it was your friend suicide which by the way I'm so sorry about that because mm-hmm. suicide just is a different kind of level of grief and you know i left disney and i tell everybody like like a lot of people think like oh i just started disney to start my own business i actually spent a couple years in seminary pursuing a counseling degree for the same same kind of reasons is like i want to it's like there's like what's the meaning and richard Rohrer, one is one of the people i studied a lot that's how i got interested in richard Rohrer to begin with and it was a lot of his stages he has other kind of models where he talks about like that downward journey And, and, you know, how, what do you do at that crossroads? Like, do I just say, you know, screw it. I just want to be happy. Do you kind of fake it and, you know, just take on that language or do you actually do the downward journey, which I think might have to do with what we're talking about in our conversation today. So I think Richard Rohr is probably our shared interest in Richard Rohr is what got us to the conversation today, because you mentioned something in our community meetings about your book on liminal spaces, and I read a lot on Richard Rohr and the whole idea of liminal spaces. So can you talk a little bit about what are liminal spaces in general from your understanding and the concept and why is it an interesting type of thing and how does that resonate with your own story?
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, I am in process of writing a book right now on change and really about liminal spaces because I've come, now that I've been a therapist for a while, I've come to realize that you know um, most change i have to even say all change—happens in that space, right? That space of liminal space. So the technical term—it's uh, the translation of uh, Lyman. It's a, it's a Latin word which translates into threshold. And uh, there was a, an anthropologist in the early 1900s, Arnold Van Gennep, who. Kind of coined the term, I think, liminal spaces, and where he talks about, um, and he borrowed from, you know, uh, indigenous rituals or rites of passage, rites of passages, where there's like a separation phase, and then there's a kind of an in-between liminal phase, and then there's a reincorporation phase that happens, and that these, um, and that liminal space basically is just kind of understood as a territory uh, between. Um, where Where we are, where we were, and where we're not quite yet, and it's that space in between. So, um, and that's you know, when these things happen to us, liminal spaces, I'm sure everybody, maybe people who are listening are probably in some version of a liminal space. Um oftentimes, they're imposed on us through um, job changes, job loss, divorce, breakups, uh, those kinds of things. and or you know we can, with some agency enter into them and that's when you know like maybe what i did with a career change i decided to leave a business to go into um you know becoming a therapist it was quite a change right and it required me to step into a lot of uncertainty and um so so those are the, the, the that's a, what i come to have understand as a liminal space that moving from the threshold the separation from what was in that space, not quite getting there yet, but that space between and what might be. And what happens in there is where all kind of change happens. There's a wonderful meme, I'm sure you've seen it, where there's a circle and it says comfort zone. And then there's another circle and it says where the magic happens and they're not touching. And that space between these two circles is what I've come to understand is uh, liminal space.
0: I I just, I love the way you described it too. Like in seminary, we used to call it like the already, but not yet. And, you know, it's like, you look behind me or you look at my my little tattoo. It's like my whole business is about the butterfly, but it's really about the cocoon. Like the way I see it is like when you're a high achiever and you hit the top of your profession and then you want to do something else, you know, like you're, you're not quite you know, like you're that that's the caterpillar life, you want to move into the butterfly, but you got to go through the cocoon. And a lot of Me people too. that I like before I work with him, or right at the beginning that I work with them is like, they don't want to go into the cocoon. You know, like, I think that the reason why we all, like, Richard Ward talks about those choices, is a lot of times we just say screw it is because the cocoon is so difficult. It's so uncomfortable. You know, you have yes. to kind of like, Digest off everything that you once knew to let this new form create. Why do you think the liminal spaces are just absolutely so awful? Just from your own experience, but also as a mental health therapist, like what is it that you know of why do we avoid liminal spaces? Like we'll just avoid it with everything we have.
1: Yeah, well, I've come to understand it's um, that we are not socialized to tolerate uncertainty right and an ambiguity and and not knowing and so um and those are all the skills that are required for transversing liminal space right you, you have to build some sort of tolerance for uncertainty or ambiguity or unknowing um and you know i've come as a therapist i've come to understand that what happens to folks often what gets characterized as like let's say relapse and you know, somebody's misusing substances or something. Look at relapse, or oftentimes people get uh, accused of self-sabotage, or or you know, going back to the bad relationship or stuff like that. I've come to understand that 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 is simply oftentimes people just turning back in the midst of liminal space to what mm-hmm. is known and what is known and familiar. And I mean, we accuse them of making these mistakes, but what I've come to understand is that people step into, and we all do it. We, we often, and we all do it in our own ways, but oftentimes think about the things that are known and familiar to you that you keep turning back to, right? And, um, and there's uh, Michael White, who's a narrative therapist. Uh, he kind of explained this in a way that I really appreciated that there's the known and familiar and the possible to know. And it's a very hard leap, right? That you actually have to be scaffolded through that and that's where I think coaching and consulting can be really, really helpful, but um but people can't just make the leap, you know. So
0: oh, like I just have to sit with that. There's a couple things that you said are so powerful is mm-hmm. um I wanna I wanna go back to I wanna talk about the scaffolding in a second, but I wanna go back to what you said is like it's actually a turning back. And it's been one of those things as like a business mentor, I always get confused Is like, I have clients that I help with and we spend so much time working on their website. And then once it's done, then it's just like, oh, and then they don't launch it. And it's like, I'm like, why, you know, and mm-hmm. as a, um, you know, and then I see them, it's like, you won't even like market it. You'll go and just be a subcontractor. I'm like, but we did so much effort and never really pictured that that's just a turning back, yeah. that I'm just going back to what I know. I think about now like all of these change efforts as an OD consultant that I've led, just like there are all these memories are flashing through my mind of like, it's a turning back, you know, like we hit that wall. Like, what is it about it? Like what, what's the wall that we hit that makes us decide I don't want to move forward, but I'll turn back. Yeah. What is that well, well, wall?
1: The wall that we hit is the the wall of whatever our tolerance level is of uncertainty, right? We all have a, I'd call a window of tolerance, right? And um, once we get taken out of that window of tolerance, then that's when we want to slam back to what is known and familiar. And so so our task, both individually and as maybe coaches or consultants, is how do we expand people's window of intoler- window of tolerance for uncertainty, ambiguity, unknowing, uncomfortability, uh, and, and judging by like the website, so, you know, the work that you do, the risk of failure, mm. how do we help people embrace failure as something that, um, can be very, very innovative, right. And can create, you know, rather than, you know, f- fear it or not even risk it. How do we help people like embrace it as, as a place of possibility, um, And I think that's kind of our work. So you're seeing this now in organizational, you're seeing um, frameworks, like uh, you're probably familiar with VUCA and BANI, these ideas of um, VUCA's volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And and BANI or BANI uh, highlights, first, it highlights brittleness of systems. And second, anxiety that people experience and change efforts. And it acknowledges the, the ends the non-linear uh, na- nature of events and then highlights uh, the incomprehensibility that we should always be training and learning about how to do the incomprehensibility and so you're seeing now organizational psychology uh, beginning to understand these of the liminal space right the effects if real change is going to happen we need frameworks and understanding and these these are, these are a couple of their attempts of doing that so
0: Yeah, I think that there's something about that tolerance for ambiguity, but I think when you're really talking about change, there's a difference, I think, between like just evolutionary change, like where I'm just going to do a little bit more of who I am, you know, like that's an evolutionary thing where it's like, all right, I have to learn how to manage ambiguity complexity in my external environment. Like there's that Mm -hmm. kind of change. But when you're talking about deep change, where I personally have to transform so on a simple level, when I look at organizations, a lot of times they're going to get stuck. Like if you're going to go from this life cycle to this one, it requires a total transformation. Like let's say the executive in charge always saw themselves as like, I'm a salesperson, I'm an entrepreneur. Now I have to be an executive. That's a total transformation from the inside out. And there's that's a different type of liminal space because the Because I have to let go. Why? Why I I get fascinated by the butterfly is Mm. the whole idea is that the caterpillar goes into the cocoon, and the adult templates of the butterfly are all encoded within that caterpillar. But in the cocoon, they literally has to have to digest themselves of everything that is not the adult templates. So there's a deep loss. So if I'm an executive, I have to Mm. let go of my identity as a as a salesperson. When I deal with my clients, sometimes like I have to let go of my identity as a you know a corporate leader in order to take on the identity of an entrepreneur. You had to let go of your identity as a business owner, then you had to let go of your identity as a therapist to embrace a new identity as a consulting business owner type of person. Like how do you how do you manage that death? Like how do you how do you help people like let go of that death?
1: yeah and you raise a really great point because this all this interest all started when i left my company and became a therapist because there was a year i started grad school right and there was a year where i hadn't seen a client yet so i i hadn't i wasn't really a therapist and i was no longer an entrepreneur so i was in this identity liminal space right And it was really destabilizing for me. I didn't know who I was and I hadn't seen a client yet. And I just, I just changed my whole life. And I didn't even know if this is really what I was going to be doing. And I remember, fortunately for me, when I saw my first client, it was a year later in the program. When I saw my first client, 15 minutes into seeing my first client, I was like, oh, this is exactly what I want to be doing. So that worked out for me. But there was that year period where I was just uh, really, um like didn't know who I was anymore and it was really destabilizing and uncomfortable and, and that kind of thing the thing that helped me is that I had people in my life um that were walking alongside me in it and so and I and that's what I think is really really important for us and that's why I think coaching like any organizations if you're really going to have change I think you you need that you know you need you know people that will walk alongside not in front of you but walk alongside mm-hmm, you in mm-hmm. this in this process right um, and that's what you know because of what i you know i still train therapists and and one of the things they they hear me say all the all, all the time is that i don't care what the problem is it grows in isolation and so um we have to be if, in any kind of change efforts especially when people, like you said when somebody's making this identity uh change that they're making that we have to help them not do it in isolation because it'll be harder and harder to do that right
0: well and it's also not just people but the right people like i'll yeah i'll right, give you right. a specific example and i would love to see if you were my coach back at the time period hmm. so um i had left disney i was an od consultant consulting was natural for me when I started my consulting business, like, yeah, I had to learn marketing sales. But the essential role of in my identity as a consultant stayed intact. You know, like mm-hmm. I had and all of my professional image of like, you know, I could stand up in front of a group of executives, blah, blah, blah. But I had this yearning on um, this to help people more one on one and move into this branding space that I'm in now, like helping people like activate their skills and their strengths and all of that. And it was such mm-hmm. a huge thing. But I had I had advisors at that time who kept saying, especially my accountant, is you cannot, you cannot close down your consulting business. Even though I knew in my heart, I was no longer, that was no longer, that was like an old me mm-hmm. from many years ago, you know? Mm-hmm. And until you make this other business successful and they kept pushing me, like you gotta carry them both. And as I kept carrying them both and I was double-minded, one foot in this world and trying to stretch into this new world, I kept, I was told over and over again, you cannot close this down. And I just had to come to a point because I was failing in both of them. I was never going to make this other one successful until I shut down that old thing. And I had to say goodbye to everything that I knew. And I had no one really around me supporting me because the people that were around me, it's like, well, if you can go work with executives, why would you do that? If you can land six figure gigs so easily, why would you do that? So, I had the advice. I had people, but all of them were had a lot of vested interest in my old identity. So, mm-hmm. if you were my coach, if you were my therapist, <laughs> if you were the person yeah. at yeah. that point in time, what did because I know there's a lot of people who are listening who are either saying i want to I want to leave my corporate job and I want to start my own business, or I have a business that I like but I don't love anymore, and my heart is yearning in another direction counsel, I'm going to be your virtual, I'm going to be everybody's mm-hmm. virtual client at this point in time and counsel us. What would you say to us?
1: Yeah. So <laughs> I get asked this a lot, right? And so because people know my background and these changes that I made in my life. And so people come to me a lot. And I, I even wrote this in the book is like, when they do come to me, I tell them I have one, one move. That's it. I have One piece of advice. And if it was you, Betsy, and you came to me and you were contemplating doing this my one my one move is that you just do it I, my i push you off the cliff that's what i'm going to do so if you want to come to me about like i'm going to make this change should i or whatever i am all in i'm going to push you off the cliff to go all in right and the reason is is because uh, you know i would you know I, what i hear you saying is that people people are kind of projecting their own on anxieties onto you right and like why would you and i heard a lot of that too and why would you leave this like thing that has given you financial security and all this stuff to go be a therapist like why you know and um <laughs> and so you know be and i did i just i left and i took the risk and i and i haven't regarded minimum i'm glad i did it and but but also, I think that this is just me. I think you know, mine was born out of, like you said, grief—a certain kind of grief, right—and that I came to the realization, um, and this is bringing Richard Rohr back into the picture, maybe too, that I came to the realization that we don't know how much time we have here, right? Mean, I, we don't, and, and you know, and um, and so I'm I'm always really aware of that that's always kind of here this idea that this is impermanent. so you know if you want to do something do it you know take the leap you know um that's that's my one move and so and it's worked for me and i know there's all kinds of other considerations you know uh, in context and all that kind of stuff i mean we yeah, i get it you know there's other stuff to consider but at the end of the day that's my one move Go for it. Go all in. Do it.
0: So I, I think some people are like, yes, okay. I wish I would have had around you, had you <laughs> as a better external person giving me that advice. But then they're going to be like, well, but what about my internal world? Because the 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 voices on the outside only matter because they resonate with what you're saying to yourself on the inside. So let me throw you some of the the resistance phrases that people might say. But Chris, I've always been successful and independent. Um, I, I I don't know if I should go into this other one where I'm not going to be successful. Why? You know, you're asking me to give up my success. Why? <laughs> why I'm not going to be successful in this new world like I was in this old world?
1: Yeah, but I mean, how do you know that, right? <laughs> um, uh, that that is again going back to the known and familiar. You mm-hmm. know. There, you wouldn't even be thinking about if if everything was groovy, right? You wouldn't even be thinking about something else, right? Um, but the thing is, is if I asked you enough questions, say you were coaching me and we had some time, I would be asking you enough questions about what really has kind of created this this kind of urgency or this this thing inside of you that you want to do something different, and and I bet we would get at all the reasons why this is no longer fulfilling this is doing it for you this kind of thing but and then we can we can examine how um even though it's totally not what you want to be doing you know how to do it but you don't know how to do that right and so then we can begin to have a conversation about and this is where i like you know like scenario planning or like kind of trying to help people have some sort of prediction of what might they might expect when they go to do this that's how i begin to scaffold people right so to because once you start talking about the future it has an effect on your present and um that's that's how i would start doing that like you know acknowledging that even though this thing is totally unsatisfactory you know how to do it you know what it looks like tastes like feels like and that's why it will always have a pull for you but let's talk about the future that you want the preferences that you want in your life, the hopes you have for your life. And then let's talk about that. And then let's talk about how scary it is. And let's talk about what experiences you might have as you begin to go into liminal space. And that is how I would hope to scaffold somebody to what might be possible.
0: Yeah, so there's like, I think this is where Richard Rohr talks about is like, there's a form not formula as you go into these liminal spaces. And it's like, pay attention to the the milestones of what it might be. And I think that's what you're saying in the, sc- the scaffolding is, you know, like future you is going to worry about everything that you're going to do, but there is a path that you can follow, you know, like as you're like, I know for sure, as you're converting a career into your calling, there is there are steps that you can go through so that you can at least see those mile, milestones. But the truth is that there is still going to always be a faith type of element because you don't know exactly what it's going to look like for you. When I stepped into right. this particular world, I didn't expect that I really love like branding is my thing, you know, like <laughs> put and helping people figure out words and the writer side of me, really giving room for the writer, the messaging person. I would have never guessed that when I first stepped on that journey, I thought, well, everybody wants my OD consulting practices. I mean, that's how yeah. you and I first got connected. Yeah,
1: exactly. And, yeah.
0: you know, you've seen all of, you know, you've seen, you know, everybody makes jokes about like, you know, what's Betsy's branding for today? I'm like, but it's like, <laughs> if it's still like, I'm just stepping into it kind of mm-hmm. like on the scaffolding, mm-hmm. but you still have to address the fear of the unknown. So I want to ask you a question on something that I've been really contemplating a lot lately, just in just some of the stuff that I'm reading is there's two principles when it relates to change that I just think is a cosmic joke is the one side is that the only constant is change like change in our our world is is it is what it is you could look at the right. seasons are constantly changing birth death rebirth is a cycle but our brain in the way that we are wired is we are wired to hate change everything about our our brain is wired to avoid change at all costs Right. why do these things exist this <laughs> makes no sense this feels like a cosmic joke like this does, this yeah. is the biggest cosmic joke of all the cosmic jokes for us who are change and transformation professionals mm-hmm.
1: yeah well i think it's has something to do if we truly knew how impermanent and and every, how thing is everything is in motion we might just you know get lose our minds it's too, too much um so you know i some evolutionary science might be involved about how we've kind of uh learned over time to uh, stabilize uh, our view of the world in some way shape or form but the reality is is that it's it's not stable it's always in motion it's always changing and and i think people are becoming clear of that and i think you know i think you know, I just think that's why I think you're, you're having people like Richard Rohr talk about liminal space, and and people are starting to talk, you know, kind of talk about these ideas about, you know, and about how, how, you know, I mean, a lot of our, a lot of our world is like, how do we, how do we keep it the way it used to be, right? You see a lot of that in the world, and then you have other people in the world that are like, no, no, we need to change, and it's like, um, but even the people that want change, you know they want some control in that change, and so it's just creating a lot of uh, friction. But the reality is is that we we our world is changing. Um, we need it to change. We need to build new ways of being together with each other. Um, and uh, the the skills of the future, I would argue, are going to be how do we do change? How do, how do we do uncertainty, ambiguity, and unknowing? And how do we be effective in that? And, um, and I think, uh, you know, we're becoming clearer that, you know, the world is pretty chaotic <laughs> and that's the way that it is. And, you know, those, that, uh, those of us that kind of embrace that, I think are, are gonna be better off.
0: I wonder if the solution—not to get political on this show, because this is not a political show. <laughs> well, I, but, I try not to do that. <laughs> but I, but I do think that there's something in there about your your laddering principle. Like if you kind of look at both sides of the aisle, you have one side is so afraid of change that they're saying we should not have any change. Let's go backwards in time, and we have another side that's like so a uh, you know like just so ready from progressive, and it's like they're just going to like rush off into the on you know into the unknown and try to create change or create a a specific vision of change and i wonder if the answer somewhere in there is yes we have to move we have to change and evolve because that's the nature of the world but you know maybe we just need to do it maybe the like being too progressive or being too regressive that's the problem and we have to step Mm -hmm. into change in a way that doesn't freak out all of our survival brains yeah you know that we can't freak ourselves out but also moves that progress forward because there's a reason why there's, I like what you said is like, there's a reason for your discontent and that you should pay attention to that discontent. There's a reason why people are discontent with the status quo.
1: Right, yeah, and I agree. And I think it is a scaffolding thing. And I, oftentimes when I, you know, when doing therapy and working with a family, usually there's some member of the family that has changed, has changed in some way, either identity or, you know, all the different ways the change happens. But they've done that change. They've been thinking about that change. They've done it over a time. And, you know, oftentimes they're ready for the family to catch up with them, right? And so we have to, there's this understanding that you have to realize that you, you're farther along and uh, you have to give people some grace about trying to catch up, I think. Um, and I think that comes down to scaffolding. How do we, because I'm all about change. Let's make the change happen. Uh, but how do we um, how do we bring everybody along with us in that? And sometimes that requires us to slow down a little bit, or uh, to um, enter into our own uncomfortability about not going at a pace that we would prefer, or that kind of thing. How do we how do we do that? So,
0: like, and not not do change like big change too fast. Like for example, like I um, I would compare uh, evolutionary change from transformational change to my moves. So I had been in Florida for years and years and years and moving across Mm -hmm. town from one part of Orlando to another part of Orlando. It's like, yeah, it was stressful, you know, and I, there was a lot of things that were had to go on. But I, when I tried to take that approach of moving across town to my approach to moving across country, you know, Mm -hmm. at the same time of becoming a, you know, an empty nesting parent, you know, where my kids are out of the house, like it was so much change and I went too fast, like it almost like it, it burnt me out. Like this, no. this this move to Denver was like, it was the one of the worst <laughs> changes because <I've, laughs> I didn't manage it properly. I did not acknowledge, I tried to use evolutionary change principles on a transformational change because it's dramatically no. different. My lifestyle was different and where I was living was different. And no. if I needed to go slower, I needed to stage it in a different way. I needed to manage my expectations in a different way. And I think that that's some of the stuff where we're talking about a liminal space. That's really different type of change that if there's a change that has a liminal space, that's very different. And we have to approach it in that particular way. And as consultants and coaches, when we're helping somebody, we have to understand the difference. That's why with my clients, I I would always say it does not work to just go out there and get clients. You cannot just leave corporate and just go out there and get clients because that would be if you are doing an evolutionary career change. But when you're completely transforming, you gotta go slow to go fast because you're gonna freak out your system at some point and then you're gonna go and do that and then you're gonna have a freak out. Does does that that analogy work?
1: Yes, and that's something I learned late in life is I love the idea now of going slow to go fast. Whereas before I was, let's just go fast all over the place. And I think I burned a lot of energy foolishly that way and um, made a lot of mistakes that I didn't really need to in that way and got distracted in ways that, you know, I was trying to do everything all the time, or all different. And, um, and once I really bought into the idea of to go slow and go fast, it, that it really works. Um, mm-hmm. um, it just took me a long time to learn that. Unfortunately,
0: because the go slow to go fast is like what you're saying is the laddering approach. Yeah. You know, like, because then I have a chance to breathe.
1: Yeah. And you're you're less prone to want to turn back to the known and familiar because, you know, you have jumped out of your window of tolerance or what happened?
0: Yeah, so it's like if you're really approaching transformation, you know, it seems like when you're in the midst of a transformational change, a significant one, especially at midlife, if I'm going to kind of summarize this part of our interview, Mm -hmm. it seems like first, number one is you need to acknowledge the significance of that particular change, recognize that usually when you get to that kind of change, something pushes you. Like even though you said you made the volitional choice, but there was a wake up call that happened in the form of some sort of crisis that got you to that part. Uh, The other principle that we can really lean into is the whole idea that there is a liminal space and the unknown is a part of the process. But in the unknown, there are milestones. There's form, not formula that you could follow, but also that um, if you go slow to go fast, you're going to give your brain and give all the parts of yourself like a chance to engage in this one and then you can Mm -hmm. uh, manage it and then you can go to this one and you can manage it Mm -hmm. like now I know like this is why I this is like why I do a lot of the I didn't know why I did I knew I did like action learning but it's like I always recommend going slow to go fast with my clients and I think it's exactly what you're saying it's like because you need to give yourself a breather to Mm -hmm. internalize where you're at Mm -hmm. yeah like that's really powerful absolutely So let's turn our conversation to really the power of liminal spaces and Mm -hmm. why that's so significant for consultants and coaches. Like, you know, in in doing interviews with a lot of executives, they will tell you that the reason why they hire consultants and coaches is when they're in those liminal spaces, when they are scaling up to the next phase of growth or something has changed within the organization. So can you talk about the liminal spaces as an opportunity for consultants and coaches and why us not having a formal place on the org chart actually is better and more powerful than if we actually did have a formal place on the org chart.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I, just, think, become, I just think now that that all change is entering into liminal space and all the different forms, right? It can take many different forms. And, And in organization for individuals and organizations and then leaders and then, you know, in organizations and, um, and I I think if you don't have that kind of understanding or support in that process, the change is you're going to and I know, Betsy, you've probably seen a lot of failed change efforts in your career, right? Um,
0: (laughs) To see, well, it would be, (laughs) it would be better to ask me to count how many successful change efforts I've seen in organizations.
1: Right. Well, you know, like I said, when I train therapists, for example, oftentimes I'll ask them, how many of you are here because you're that one person that everybody comes to for advice? And Betsy, I bet you're one of those people, too, because that's who you are. Um, But And everybody, inevitably, most people raise their hands and I say, how many times has somebody came to you for advice and you said, just do this? And how many times do people actually just do that? Right. And everybody's like, "No, they don't ever do it, right. And and because re- because people when they give advice, which sometimes co- uh, not great coaching and consulting is, is advice giving, they they don't realize what they're doing. and like I'm going to go back to the known and familiar and the possible to know, and that you can't just make that leap and and so somebody will come in and say, well, you just all need to do this. Well, that's, that's not accounting for the liminal space and the ambiguity and the uncertainty and the unknowing and the fear of failure and all that stuff that needs to be scaffolded through. And so that's where, uh, when I think you get the right coach and consultant or whatever that can, can scaffold you through or your organization or your team or whatever it be through that part of thing, then maybe you have a chance at actually changing. But if you don't, if you just come in and say, you just all need, need to do that, great, we're gonna leave now, you do that. And then everybody wonders why that never gets done because nobody's accounted for that space in between, what we now are calling liminal space. And that's why I think change efforts don't work. And I, and I think that's, if you want them to work, then that's why I think coaches and consultants can help if you want that kind of scaffolding in that process.
0: Have you ever yeah. heard the book, um, General Theory of Love? I have not. No. It's a really good book on on the limbic brain. And it talks about like real change happens in the context of relationship. Like there's like mm-hmm. limbic mm-hmm. resonance and revision and all of that kind of stuff that happens. And I think that there's more than like I think what you're saying as a consultant or coach, don't go in there with your prescriptions and your advice because no, it's not right, going right. to work and it's never going to happen. Right. Take right. a scaffolding approach, you know, to it. But it's not just about the approach. I think it's also about you know, being the person who's going to sort of model for the client or, or hold out for the client, like that vision. I think a lot of times, like in the mentoring I do is I hold out for my clients, the vision of what's possible for them before. So that, you know, until they could believe it for themselves, like that's my role as a mentor. And I think that's the same thing is, yeah, you can do this. Let me paint a picture for you, you know, and let me be there with you as you're having your meltdowns along the way. And, yeah, right. exactly. and if you are having your meltdowns, like, don't worry about it. Cause that's just your survival brain. Like, it's not you. It's just a part of you. Mm-hmm. You are not the person who's having a meltdown. It's just a part of you and you can manage that.
1: That's correct. Yeah.
0: So um, you are a mediator. You do a lot of conflict resolution and mediation Um is the reason why, because I know, I could tell that you're somebody who's very interested when organizations and or leaders are going through a significant transformation that involves the liminal space, mm-hmm. um, but is there a, re- like, tell me a little bit about the conflict resolution and is there a reason why the conflicts that does, I mean, I don't know if maybe that's like this, the change is a part of your business and then the conflict resolution is another part, or is it because there's changing that's happening that conflict seems to be a a problem that happens
1: yeah absolutely and i and i just came to you know when i was in my phd program i did some research around conflict and i saw different stats that had you know managers either 40 to 60 percent of their job was dealing with conflict and they hate dealing with conflict and would prefer to ignore it right and so that conflict is often part and parcel of many organizations, teams, et cetera. Uh, and is one of those things that does um, slow down or stop completely change efforts too. So, and also I just, I like people. I like, uh, <laughs> I wanna resolve conflict. And uh, I started as a therapist in couples and families and now in teams and organizations and stuff like that. I wanna, that's where I would like to have impact in a way in, in the world. and. Um, uh, if we can reduce conflict, uh, even in the small areas of contexts that I work in, you know, I think that could have wider ripples in the world. That's the way I want to look at it. So that's why it became interesting to me.
0: So one part of your of your consulting practice is helping organizations and the leaders manage the liminal spaces within change. And then mm-hmm. another one is around the conflict resolution. Sometimes they overlap, but sometimes it's just like, can't we all just get along? Yeah, right. Yeah. So you're so you're the guy who creates the kumbaya in the organization. When they're done yeah. working with you, everybody's like, you know, <laughs> got their arms locked. And you know.
1: And if you've talked to anybody around me, I'm probably the least least kumbaya person, but <laughs> I, I have a I have an inner kumbaya person, I guess.
0: So um, so do you usually work with um, big teams and get the big teams to work together or within an intact team, or is it both?
1: Uh, Both, but typically smaller teams, usually. More intimate work, you know, and individuals.
0: So it's like, um, so you just take the, so some of it is, is you're taking a lot of the therapeutic practice into the workplace.
1: Yes, absolutely, yeah i call it uh like relational health workplace workplace relational health and you know because a lot of folks don't want to the therapy word still has some stigma around it right so uh, but the reality is is that it is about relationality relational practices and how can we be more relational together so
0: so with the so do you um do you just mediate the conflicts or do you provide like training like how tell me about how trai- you're training
1: training conflict coaching uh facilitation mediation etc yeah
0: so let's say there's a leader who has two direct reports and they're not getting mm-hmm. along do mm-hmm. you go in and help those two direct reports get along or do you coach the yes. leader on how Both. to got Both. it yeah
1: yeah so with the leader it'd be more like a conflict coaching Situation with the two people together would be more like a mediation conflict resolution situation. Yeah.
0: So, what if there's a leader who um, wants to bring in a consultant because he doesn't want to deal with the or she doesn't want to deal with the difficult feedback for a direct report, and they want mm-hmm. you to come in and help, but it's really because they don't want to have the difficult conversations? Like, how do you handle those situations?
1: Uh, well, I'd conflict. I would suggest a conflict coaching arrangement, not me doing it for them. <laughs> But, but helping coach them through that process uh, yeah. rather than just doing it for them. Yeah.
0: I'm, yeah. I'm sure that the consultants and coaches that are listening who've been around for a while will know, will remember all of those different times where they're being called in and it's like, hey, wait a minute. I'm here to do this guy's dirty work. <laughs> <You
1: know? laughs> exactly. Exactly. Not not interested. No.
0: Yeah. How can I help you? Yeah. Because it's like ultimately the sustainability is that leader has to. You know, learn how to have the difficult conversations. Um, right. when you help your clients in the workplace, um, so what are the ripple effects that you see after working with clients on their relational health issues in the workplace to their personal lives?
1: That's a great question. I think, um, I I think you know, once people kind of learn conflict resolution skills or um, like how some different kind of communication skills, et cetera, that they, they, they bleed into all kind of contexts of their lives. So um, that, you know, um, that they'll take them into that, take those skills into other relationships that they have. Absolutely. You
0: know? I think that there's some power. The reason why I'm asking that is like, sometimes like, I think when we like work on some of our transformational skills, like the things that we really need to deal with, if we manage it in the workplace, it's a lot easier than managing it in our personal life. You know, so it seems like if you're getting in there and it's like, because it's less risk in some ways than if it is like, you know, just with the people that you love. So I'm wondering, you know, if that's some of the, the benefits that, you know, when you bring in the therapeutic kind of concepts, maybe not direct, but indirect, you know, you're really helping in so many other areas than, you know, and fulfilling the full mission of what you wanted to do, to begin with is you had a business then you wanted to help people and now you're bringing it together right. but you're still helping people i just i wonder if that's like a i wonder if that's an explicit part of you know like bringing full picture you know full full going full circle to fulfill your the all the visions that you had since midlife
1: yeah and how i wanted to have impact in the world and i would like to think you know you know what i've learned about first order change and second order change which is the, the harder change right and and how once that happens, it does have effects in it because, you know, we're all interconnected, right? I do believe that we're all uh, parts of systems and larger systems. And so once any kind of change happens in the system, it has, a, like you said, ripple effects through the whole system. So I would like to think, you know, that the work is impactful.
0: It feels like it. I mean, I know for you being a part of our community, you've just, you always bring such a unique perspective. I can only imagine what it's like when you work with your clients and how you bring that type of relational health. Um, can you be more explicit about your your web address, like pe- how people can find you? And I know you're working on a book and can you give us a little sneak peek <laughs> on what you're working on?
1: Yeah. So um, I'm working on a book and it's titled working title right now is Radical Change. And um, it is all about uh, liminal space and um, uncertainty and holding space. One of the chapters is about holding space, how we can hold space for ourselves and others that are going through some of these changes. And so um, I hope to have that completed sometime next year. And um, I I can be found at hoffconsultinggroup.com. And uh, drchrishoff.com. dot com, and yeah, those are the spots to track me down.
0: That is amazing. Thank you. Is there? We've talked a lot about change in general. We talked about conflict resolution. Um, is there anything else that you would want to tell me about radical change, about the liminal spaces, about the power of liminal spaces that consultants and coaches can really take advantage of to make a bigger difference and actually have a, you know, a clear market, market niche? Anything about like? you know, taking big risks to walk into the liminal space. And I'm just not asking the right questions. Yeah,
1: um, You know, I, I, yeah, I think uh, there's a ton of opportunity. And, you know, I think there's a ton of, you know, consultants, and I think, sometimes get a bad rap because they come in, do change efforts, and the change just never happens. And I think, we have to begin to really understand uh, why change isn't happening. And I think it is because of these um, these journeys into liminal space and, and how they are destabilizing, how they are, there's a ton of uncertainty, ambiguity, unknowing, fear, and fear of failure. And if we're going to coach people through those, we have I think we all have to have an understanding of it. We have to have an understanding in our own lives too um, about how work confronting that kind of change or how we haven't confronted that kind of change, how we've consistently maybe turned back to the known and familiar mm-hmm. and and what we need to do um, to expand our own window of tolerance for uncertainty. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, you know, you're going to be kind of the people around you, uh, Betsy, that were telling you, don't do that. Don't do that. Um, when in reality, you needed somebody telling you maybe whispering in your ear, go for it, Betsy, go for it.
0: (laughs) Wow. Okay. Well, on that note, that's a perfect time to end the interview is just, you know, if you have a change, go for it. And, you know, again, the scaffolding approach can help you not get to the point where you want to turn back later on. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been really amazing to have you here. I just learned so much. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Betsy, I appreciate it. Great talking to you.
0: So if you're a leader in an organization undergoing radical change or wanna improve the relational health of your teams, I highly recommend Chris. But if you're a consultant or coach who wants a mentor and guide like me, who can help you navigate the unknown between let's say employment and entrepreneurship or between your success and significance, let's talk. Check out my website at www.betsyjordan.com and remember Jordan is with a Y, I got all kinds of freebies there, and you'll also appreciate my free success roadmap, which will help you overcome a little bit of that fear of the unknown, because it will show you the milestones. And of course, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to hit subscribe to this podcast. And until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you for tuning in. If today's episode lit a fire on you, please rate and review enough already on Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. And if you're looking for your next step, visit me on my website at betsyjordan.com. And it's Betsy Jordan with a Y, and you'll learn all about our end-to-end services that are custom-designed to accelerate your success. Don't wait. Start today.